been studying together the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. Today we conclude this series. Perhaps you've wondered why, as, we've, as you've heard each sermon, each uh, psalm over these last few weeks, uh, last few months. Perhaps you've wondered why we studied these psalms. And the most basic answer is that just like the original readers and singers of these psalms, uh, say 2,500 to 3,000 years ago, we need the truth that these psalms teach. We deal with people who lie about us and seek our harm, as in Psalm 120. We need the help of the one who keeps us from all evil in Psalm 121. We feel the joy and warmth of being gathered with the people of God in Psalm 122. And we need to remember that, you are the one, uh, that God is the one who gives us mercy in Psalm 123. He's also the one who gives us escape from the enemies of, of God in Psalm 124. And he gives us stability in 125. We need to find our true joy in God's restoring work in Psalm 126. We need the Lord to bless our efforts in 127. We want the Lord to bless us as we walk in his ways in Psalm 128. We wait patiently for the Lord to deal with his enemies in Psalm 129. We recognize our problem of sin and put our hope in his forgiveness in Psalm 130. We are thirsty in our souls, so we look to the Lord to satisfy in Psalm 131. And we are easily shaken. So we need to know that God is committed to his promises in Psalm 132. Today we're in Psalms 133 and 134. This is on page 487. If you do not bring a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles provided. If you don't own a Bible, we would welcome you to take one of those with you to your home. If you spend a moment thinking about roles in life that are both a privilege and a responsibility, what comes to your mind? Perhaps it's the the privilege of being a parent and the responsibility. You're charged with keeping other people alive, very small people, people who tend to fall over a lot and get hurt a lot. Uh, But you're keeping them healthy and you're giving them resources and you're teaching them the ways of the Lord and preparing them to thrive on their own when they're no longer living with you. Perhaps you think about the privilege and the responsibility of being a student or the privilege and responsibility of being an employee Uh, You perhaps handle people's money or fix their homes or their vehicles or their property or provide a service that they consider valuable enough to pay money for. Each of those roles is a privilege and each of those is a responsibility. This past week I read a book about a Secret Service agent and I have a friend in the Secret Service so I saw this book and it caught my eye. And I was impressed by what a privilege it is for these agents to see aspects of say the president or his wife or his children Um, and uh, others close to the president, other elected officials, uh, they have a front row view. Though they're supposed to act like they're invisible, (laughs) they have a front row view to some of the most consequential moments in our world and some of the decisions that they make. But I was also impressed by the responsibility that those agents carry. They can never take their eye off of the person that they are responsible to protect, They cannot go into a building with that person if there's not at least two ways in and two ways out. So there is a lot riding on them to do their job without failing in a single detail, which often means months of preparation for a single visit to a a school or any other location. But if you think about it from a certain angle, there are a lot of similarities between those roles we just talked about, of being a a student or a parent or a, a special agent, an employee, 
A lot of similarities between those roles and our roles and our privileges and responsibilities as Christians. That's what we observe in these two psalms today is that as God's people, we have both great privileges and great responsibilities. As God's people, you have great privileges and great responsibilities. It's very likely, I think, that these psalms were placed here at the end of this kind of subset of psalms on purpose. So in other words, if Psalms 120 through 134 are a unit, I think they clearly are based on the fact that they're the only psalms that have the heading, a psalm of ascents, so a psalm for those who are going up to Jerusalem. It seems like they were on purpose grouped together, probably written at different times in different places by different people. Some of them say of David, which means probably written by David. One says of Solomon, and the rest don't have any name associated with them. So we don't know who wrote those or under what circumstances. But I think it's safe to say they were all grouped together on purpose. I don't know anybody who would dispute that. And I think it's also safe to say they were formed together, kind of like shaped together, kind of like the way you might copy and paste different uh, pictures together to create a a montage or a, a way of remembering a certain time of your life. And there are different ways that you can look at the similarities between these psalms, but even as I read that list of, we need to know this, we need to know that, maybe you noticed, oh, there's some similarities in, say, Psalm 126 and Psalm 128, and you know you can just kind of keep kind of uh, comparing and contrasting the different psalms. All that to say, I think we can say these two are here on purpose. And, and again, Christians are going to disagree about why these are the last two psalms of ascent. Perhaps they're at the end of this grouping uh, because... They were written for pilgrims traveling to go worship God, and maybe now they've arrived there and say, oh, in Psalm 133, now that we're here, it's beautiful for us to dwell together in unity. And 134, it's important for us to worship the Lord together with his people. But maybe it's that they've now left, say, Jerusalem, and they're heading back to their homes. Well, what should we do now that we've gone on this pilgrimage and we go back to the normal routines of our daily lives? We need to keep walking in unity as God's people. We need to keep worshiping God as God's people. So either way to me, uh, either way, however you determine why these psalms were the last two psalms of ascent, I think it's clear to me that these two psalms provide us with two significant privileges and two significant responsibilities as God's people. And the first is that we are to pursue unity with God's people. Pursue unity with God's people. That's the emphasis of Psalm 133. I say it's a privilege for us to pursue unity because it's a privilege to be a part of God's people in the first place. We didn't become part of the family of God because we decided to. Let me just put the emphasis and a different word in that sentence there. We didn't become part of the family of God because we decided to. We sang today... How sweet and awful is the place. The word awful there means full of awe, full of wonder and majesty and beauty. How sweet and full of wonder is the place where Christ is within the doors. This is talking about what it is to meet with God and to be a part of the family of God. Did you notice there's a question in that song that says, look at all these people who are not here. And then I look around and I say, how in the world did I get invited here? Lord, why am I a guest at your table? How in the world did I get into this beautiful situation? It wasn't because of my accolades and my accomplishments and my dignity and my worth and my goodness. I am here. I am a Christian, we could say, because of the work of God. 
And so when we say it's a privilege to pursue unity with God's people, it's because it's a privilege to be a part of the people of God in the first place. It was something the Lord himself did. But it's also a responsibility to pursue unity with God's people because unity doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen on accident, that's for sure. It's work to pursue unity and sustain unity. It takes great work. Verse 1 here in Psalm 133. I'll read all of Psalm 133 here. We'll read 134 in a few moments. So listen to verses 1 through 3 here of Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. In verse 1, the psalmist tells us that unity brings pleasure. It is good and pleasant when people work together, live together, dwell together in unity. These brothers is talking about, probably just talking about the people of Israel, brothers and sisters in Israel. Uh, of, of common descent together, seeking to honor and worship the Lord together. The psalmist tells us the unity brings pleasure, but he also says the unity is beautiful. Did you notice he uses two similes? And if you haven't been in English class in a couple of decades or so, a simile is comparing something with the word like or as. So in this case, it uses the word like two times. You notice that in verse 2. It's like the precious oil. And then in verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon. So this oil here is probably talking about a special concoction of oil based on Exodus 30. You can go and read that there if you want, but it's the kind of oil that God's people would prepare to anoint the high priest for his priestly duty as he goes in to make intercession, or in other words, to go before the presence of God in the tabernacle or later in the temple. And they would anoint him with oil as a way of signifying he is holy, he is ready for this task. Because it was such a significant part of his, of his ministry on behalf of the people of God. And so Exodus 30 tells you what this oil was <clears throat> composed of. And it would have smelled lovely. I personally don't really like the image of oil like dripping down me. Seems kind of gross. I'm not an oily type guy. But uh, perhaps you are. That's fine. We won't judge that. But I would just say that the people who were reading this first would have been like, Wow, that's actually beautiful. That's beautiful. So maybe instead of picturing like oil running down a beard, you think of something else. In your experience, that has proven to be particularly beautiful. Maybe you've driven down like the Blue Ridge Parkway in the south, like in North Carolina or Tennessee or Virginia and during fall colors. That maybe would strike you as like, oh yeah, that's, it's kind of like when you drive through the Blue Ridge Parkway in fall. Or maybe you've been to a super fancy restaurant. There was one in, in our town in Alabama, like the nicest restaurant in our town and we only went when people paid for us because it was very expensive. But uh, their, their Sunday buffet was legit. And uh, when you walked in, it caught your eye. Like the, the trays of food and the, the variety that was available to you. Just the dessert table was on point. And I would say I spent a lot of time there. <clears throat> but these are the kinds of pictures we have when we say, it is beautiful, it's kind of like, and you could fill in your blank. These examples that the psalmist used here would have made a lot of sense to the readers in, say, the year 750 or 1,000, whenever you want to picture that this psalm may have been written. 
So it's like the oil getting ready to anoint the high priest, which in this case was Aaron, later on his sons, his descendants. It's also like the dew of Hermon. Hermon is a mountain in northeast Israel. You can look up pictures of it. It's typically covered in snow. It's the highest point in Israel. In fact, for the trivia fans among you, it's the only place in Israel where they have a skiing and snowboarding resort. So if you're in Israel and you want to go skiing and snowboarding, you go to Mount Hermon even today. It's usually covered in snow. The melting of that snow and the natural springs that come out of the ground near the foot or the base of Mount Hermon cause water to run down through the rest of Israel. Where the elevation gets lower and lower, the water runs down. It's watering the rest of Israel. And so it's important in keeping Israel moist and verdant and beautiful. And so this moisture from Hermon keeps the land nourished, the land of Israel nourished. And David, the psalmist here, is saying, when you see something beautiful like flowers growing in the valley, it's because of the water running down from Hermon, the dew from Hermon, the moisture from Hermon, and it's coming all the way to Zion, and it's keeping even this part of southern Israel, central to southern Israel, beautiful. This is a reminder. Unity is super beautiful. It's like this dew running down and nourishing the whole land. He tells us that unity signifies blessing from God. There the Lord has commanded the blessing. And he defines what this blessing is. Did you catch that? The last line of Psalm 133 tells you what the blessing of God is. It's life forevermore. He's saying unity is as beautiful as the greatest gift God could possibly give you. And Israel was looking forward to life forevermore in the land. In a land where it was, how does the Old Testament describe the promised land? It's a place flowing with milk and honey. It means that you have like beautiful flowers which give the nectar to the bees and they create this beautiful honey. It means you have green hills and you have cattle roaming through them and sheep and goats and so forth, making this a beautiful, verdant, lively place. And they expected to live in this promised land forever without the assault of enemies, without the threat and dangers that could come their way. They were looking forward to that kind of life forevermore as the people of God. How do we enjoy the blessing of life forevermore, or maybe if we want to use the language of, say, the book of John, how do we enjoy eternal life? It's through faith in Jesus. Not because of your performance and the fact that you feel pretty good about the way you lived this past week. You know, maybe you saw some progress in your fight against sin and in maybe a particular relationship that's important to you in your home. But how do we receive that life forevermore? Not through those works of our own, but through the work of Christ and our faith in him. And if you have never put your faith in Christ, or maybe this whole concept of living somewhere forever strikes you as strange, we would love to talk to you. Just catch somebody either right after the service or at the fellowship meal and ask, how can I know that I have life forevermore? Or why would I even want to know that I have life forevermore? And we would love to discuss that with you. But the psalmist here is talking about unity and how beautiful it is. That's what these similes here are describing. But you probably realize that not all unity is good unity, right? When you uh, are unified around sin, or you're unified around, say, a shared conviction in a church that sin is no big deal, that's not good unity. So some churches share a general consensus that sin is really just a problem that makes you feel guilty. So it's not a big deal, that would be a wrong conclusion. And a church that's united around that truth, 
then is united around in error. Uh, so there's a, uh, you know, this sense that the real casualty in sin is the person who sins. No, the person that sin is directed against is God. And you've offended a holy God who created you. You have rebelled against him in his world. He's the maker, so he gets to, to define what true life looks like and what obedience looks like. And so we shouldn't unite around a shared sense that sin is no big deal. We should unite around the truth of the gospel. The one that God, the truth that God is the one who's offended by sin, and He is the one who who creates the solution to our sin. Churches could choose to be united on any number of issues, good or bad. And maybe you've realized this that some churches are kind of known for different emphases. So, you know, say seventy years ago, it was not uncommon for churches to be united around uh, the color of the skin of the people who came to that church. Now it's popular to unite on school choice. So a family came to our church in Alabama and said, well, we want to join this church because we heard it's the homeschool church. We're kind of like, I mean, even though there are a lot of families here that homeschool, I don't know that that's how we want to be defined. Like, I think we want to be defined as a gospel preaching church, not the church where you go if you homeschool. Uh, or you could, you could uh, find a church united around the preferred version of the Bible or any number of responses to issues in society. So what is our unity based on? The psalmist doesn't talk about this. It's just assuming that you're pursuing the same path, you have a, same, uh, a shared mission, a, a shared uh, experience, and a common expectation of what's going to happen in the future. You have even a common place of worship, which was the case for these people coming back from Jerusalem or heading to Jerusalem in some cases. And so we, as, as God's people, want to understand that that. If their unity was based on a shared experience and a shared mission and a shared uh, sense of, of what the faith is, the, the message of their faith is, that's what ours is based on as well. We center our unity on the gospel. And so one of the ways we try to promote that unity and clarify what we're about here is by singing songs that make the gospel clear and prominent. We sang uh, All Creatures of Our God and King, which talked about how do we respond to sin in the third verse? And we cast our cares on him and, and so forth. Uh, but all that as, as a part of making the gospel clear and the implications of the gospel clear. Uh, as opposed to what we sing today and will continue to sing today, some churches kind of try to drum up emotions by singing like the same verse of a song like over and over and over again. And it's kind of... Uh, Annoying, if I can say so, but it's also not super helpful because a lot of times the phrase that they're repeating has no value if you isolate it from from the rest of the song. So instead of trying to drum up a particular emotional response, we seek to center our unity on the truth of the gospel and making the gospel super clear in our song lyrics. Uh, The second way we try to center our unity on the gospel in our worship services is by having average members read scripture. You know, Nathan read the scripture passage today. I can't remember who did it last week, but we have a kind of a, a long list of people we choose from who we feel like can, can confidently get up and, and read the word of God. And sometimes they're very lengthy passages of the word of God. And uh, we are then letting the, scripture, the, the scriptures themselves dictate our unity and define where our unity is, is found. We also affirm creeds and confessions and catechisms. And some churches are united on the idea that we would never use a creed or a confession or a catechism. We have chosen to unify our faith by saying, we just want to be very clear about what we believe here. 
And so this is why a lot of times when someone gets up to, to read one of the creeds or you know, lead us in reading the creeds or the confessions, they'll say something like, this is a summary of what we believe. I think that's the way Jason put it today. This is a summary of what the gospel teaches. God, man, Christ, response. Or God, Christ, sorry, I'm getting these things out of, out of order here. The gospel starts with God, and then he creates man, and we rebel against him, so he gives us Christ, and we respond through faith and repentance. And there's that kind of flow to all of the creeds and confessions that we read here. But all these are ways that we try to keep our, our unity centered on the gospel and, its, and the gospel's implications. One of the ways we pursue and sustain unity here is through having things like fellowship meals. And so even if you weren't planning on staying today, we would encourage you to do that so you can get to know other Christians and, and celebrate the shared unity that we have in the truth. We also do this through informal times in each other's homes or through the ladies' prayer tea or the men's book study. And we could go on. But all of these, while they're intended to accomplish a number of different purposes, one of the things they're doing is they're uniting us. They're drawing our hearts together. They're strengthening the cords that, that tie us together. And so how can you as an individual, as an average church member in this congregation, how can you pursue unity in our congregation? One suggestion would be to spend meaningful time with other members. So maybe that means you go to a game together. Maybe that means you go out for a meal together or you... Um, you know, go for walks together. There's any number of ways you could draw that out, but spend meaningful time with other Christians in our church. Uh, seek to be clear on the gospel and its implications. Read good materials from the resource table. Uh, listen to good songs that help you maintain clarity on the gospel. Walk in humility, because the opposite of humility, pride, breeds contempt for one another and breeds disunity. So humility simply means we think less about ourselves and not insist. We don't insist on our way or our view. We don't get worked up over small issues. What role you play here, what songs we sing, what instruments we use. Unity, as I said earlier, is a gift from God. And so we need to nurture it. We need to protect it. We need to seek to sustain it because it requires work and humility. And it can only be faked for so long. So if you sense some area in your life where you do feel like you are not united to our congregation, we would love to talk to you about that and see, is there some way in which we can help you see what is keeping you from feeling united? But ultimately, we're not talking about a feeling of union. We're talking about a reality that God creates because of our shared faith in the gospel. I said earlier, these two psalms provide us with significant privileges and responsibility. It's a privilege to be united with God's people. It's a responsibility to be united with God's people. But second, here in Psalm 134, which I'll read in just a moment, we are to worship God with his people. So pursue unity with God's people, and then secondly, worship God with his people. Let me read Psalm 134. It's just three more short verses. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Psalm 134 teaches that we are to worship God with his people. Worship is provoked by God. We see this just by implication in verse 1. We are here to bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Well, how did I become a servant of the Lord? We talked about this a little bit in, in the last section. You are a servant of the Lord because God made you a servant of the Lord. 
And so this is probably, these servants here are probably in the original context referring to the priests who would specifically go on behalf of the Israelites into the presence of the Lord. But now we as average Christians sing these songs as well, and I think later Israelites would have done the same thing as well, realizing that that for us on this side of the cross, we are all priests before God. This is part of what God was doing in creating the people of God, is making all of us a kingdom of priests, uh, Exodus would tell us, and Revelation affirms as well. But worship is provoked by God because he has made us his servants. Worship is directed to God. That's what we see in verse 2. Lift up your hands to the holy place, which is a reference probably to uh, the, the holy of holies inside the, the, the temple structure or inside the tabernacle, but the place specifically where God's presence was specifically uh, sensed and, and present. So this holy place here is a reminder that the Lord himself is holy, and in order to access him, we have to be holy. Which again brings us back to the fact that the gospel is not an add-on for this passage. It's not something we have to get creative and think, how in the world would this passage relate to the, to the message that Jesus saved us from our sin? You can't have access to God apart from Christ. That is a crystal clear implication of this passage. That if we are going to worship a holy God, we ourselves have to be holy. And you know, you know that you are not holy. If you wanted to, you could confess for an hour the sins that you created or the sins that you committed this past week. This past week. We're not talking about your whole life. You know you are not holy. And so you know you need the gospel. You need the work of God to make you right with him. But Jesus is our priest who brings us into the holy place by faith in him. Worship brings blessing from God. We see this in verse 3. May the Lord bless you from Zion. So the word bless in verse 1 and in verse 2 is referring to praising God, worshiping God, glorifying God, saying something good about God. Maybe that would be the simplest way to say that. But the the meaning, the sense of the word bless is different in verse 3. May the Lord bless you. So you are praising God. You're saying good truth about God in his presence, and then he sends blessing back to you. And he does this from Zion, again, where he was dwelling, where the temple was built, where the tabernacle was was taken to. But this is not a village God. This isn't a God that you have to go to a particular place in order to worship him. He's the one who made heaven and earth. And so you delight in him because he delights in you because you are his people. He is the one who made heaven and earth And he will bless you. He is powerful enough to bless you because of his creative power. But I do want to ask you this question. What do you, when when someone asks you, and I hope they ask you, why in the world do you go to church? Again, if they're going to ask you, they have to know you go to church. So maybe start with telling people you go to church. Tell them to come to this church. But when they ask you, why do you go to church? How would you answer that? I go to, and if the the answer you give is something other than to worship God, it needs to be something that's a corollary of that at least. So, because it feeds my faith. Well, I think that's a part of it. We'll talk about that in just a second. That would be a good answer to give. But sometimes we might go to worship because we look at it as a transaction. Like, this is my way to kind of guarantee that this next week's going to be good. Like, God kind of has to... Be good to me because I'm worshiping him. I'm giving him, you know, the first part of my week. Sunday morning, I'm giving to God. 
Well, I guess I would ask, could you still worship God if he didn't give you any gifts? Are you, are you worshiping God because you love the giver? Or are you worshiping God because of the gifts he gives you? There is a very clear distinction there. I hope you kind of sense that. It's not the same thing. There's a giver and there are gifts. What if the giver stops giving? What if you're simply worshiping him because of who he is rather than because of the transaction that you feel that you get from it? What if God takes away everyone you love, everything you love? Can you still worship him? I pray that you would. But there are blessings that God gives us in verse 3 here. The Lord bless you from Zion. So specifically, because of what we've been talking about with the unity with the people of God, I I thought I would kind of be specific. What are some of the blessings that God gives us in a biblical worship service when we are united with God's people, when we are gathered together with them? So what are some of the blessings that God gives us in this context? One is specifically unity with the body. And I think he does this, again, by by the way that we sing and speak the same truths. We don't leave here saying, oh yeah, we can all believe whatever we want. One of the reasons we preach the way we do, sing the way we do, affirm truth together the way we do, and so forth, is so that we are convinced of the same truths. And we are convinced that we're all saying these same things together. Another way to, that we see the unity, the gift of unity with the body is by taking the Lord's Supper together. This is a reminder that you are a sinner, and so is everybody else in this room. And so you need God's grace, and so does everyone else in this room. And so we actually nurture our unity together. We confess together. I'm such a terrible Christian, I need a reminder of the gospel. So if you wouldn't mind joining me, I'm going to go get my elements now. Which is a way of saying, I'm a terrible sinner. Just keep that in mind as you walk to come and take the Lord's Supper together today. We also pray about the same concerns. I hope that as Clayton or I lead you in the pastoral prayer, or as any of our brothers who lead in the prayer of confession, as they lead us, I hope that you're able to pray along with. And it's not just a, okay, this is my chance to check my phone without anybody seeing me, or this is my chance to you know, scratch an itch without anybody seeing me. No, prayers are times for us to unite our minds together and engage our, our focus together. We also enjoy this unity of Uh, unity with the body, this gift of unity by fellowshipping together. So again, I would encourage you to stay for the meal, if you at all can. Another gift that the Lord gives us, another blessing God gives us in a biblical worship service, is the deepening of your faith. In other words, you, you leave here more convinced of what you believe and why you believe it, and you're better able to articulate it to other people. So sometimes I'll play devil's advocate with my kids and say something like, Why do you believe that Jesus is the only Savior? I mean, you realize there are billions of people who would disagree with you. So if any one of those billions of people asked you, why in the world are you convinced that Jesus is the only Savior? What would you say? And I have noticed, this is super encouraging to me, I have noticed that when they answer that question, sometimes they'll use creedal language. So they'll say things like, well, because... He's very God from very God, light from light. I don't actually know if they've used that phrase, but that idea. He came down to earth after being born of a virgin named Mary. And he lived a perfect life and he suffered under Pontius Pilate. They throw that in there and I say, so what did he fly as a pilot? Dadjokes.com. Um And he descended to hell and he ascended to heaven after he rose again the third day. And these are all things that they just kind of like 
are pulling out of the cup of truth that they have developed over their lives. But where are they getting these ideas? By hearing you say the truth together. So thank you and keep it up and realize that you're having an effect on each other by saying these truths together and deepening your own faith through that. And a third blessing of uh, a biblical worship service is increasing spiritual discipline. So I just want to commend you, as I often do, for being here. Everything you do does something to you. All right? Everything you do does something to you. The makers of social media know that very well, which is why the algorithms are set the way they are. They're going to rope you in and keep you coming. Because everything you do does something to you. So by you being here, it's doing something to you. And I think a very positive thing. It's affecting you in very positive ways, in other words. So this is one of the blessings that God gives us, is that he's shaping us. He's reforming your heart into one that wants to worship him and live for his glory. And so again, I would just ask, if somebody asks you, why in the world do you go to church on Sunday? You go because of who God is. Secondarily, you go because of the blessings he gives you. Things like unity, deepening of your faith, and increasing spiritual discipline. You have immense privileges and responsibilities. I think I told you last week about these guys who had gone into this like terribly dangerous situation in Norway during World War II, risking life. Some of them lost their lives. Some of them were terribly tortured because of their work on behalf of allied forces for the sake of freedom. And at the end of their lives, again, I think I said this just last week, but at the end of their lives when people said, so what was that experience like? Their answer was something like, and almost across the board, these guys who were interviewed, like, I was just doing my job. It was my responsibility to protect other people. But it was also my privilege to fly my flag possibly give my life for what I think is very valuable. And it reminds me, as I think of that, of that idea, that we have privileges and responsibilities for the Lord. It reminds me of Luke 17. And what should you say when you've done your job as a servant of Jesus? Luke 17.10, we only did what was our duty. Like, I didn't do anything fancy. All I did was walk with God. All I did was use my life to serve him. I hope that's your emphasis as well. It is a privilege and a responsibility to be called a child of God. So pursue unity with the people of God. Worship God with his people because this is the greatest privilege you could ever have. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we want to fulfill these responsibilities well. We want to do it for your glory We want to enjoy these privileges by your grace and for your glory. And we pray that even as we eat together in a few minutes downstairs, that the sentiment we share is that, yes, we are all strange in our own way, and we have our own backgrounds and our own idiosyncrasies, but we are here because of your calling grace in our lives. So may we enjoy this privilege of being your people. May we fulfill the responsibilities well. Be people who are helping make other disciples who make other disciples. May we do this in each other's lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.